Well, good morning, my friends. Let's gather around the Word of God. Today, um, we're going to be reading actually very uh, familiar and a very important text. We are reading from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, uh, which I think a lot of people believe is the the key verse for understanding how to handle Christian conflict. People will always say, like, we're going to handle our, our conflict in a, in a Matthew 18 kind of way, and this is the verse they're talking about. Uh, however, I want to I take a deeper look with you this morning at the context of this verse. Because I think the better way to think about this verse and what's happening is to suggest that this is a verse that's all about church discipline. And that is always just a really popular sermon topic. Like people... People flood into the church to hear a preacher preach on church discipline. They say, preacher, what's your, what's your goal for, for growing the church? And I say, well, man, I'm just going to preach on church discipline. Um, you know, I mean, it doesn't bother us to think about having discipline in our military. In fact, it's an expectation, I think we would say. Like, we, we want a disciplined military because the, the goal of the military is such an important goal of defending our country. We need to make sure that those men and women are disciplined. And, and when it comes to Alabama football, no one would suggest that they don't need to have discipline on the football team. But somewhere, when we come to church discipline, people are like, ah, really? People are prone to ask things like, um, is the church wanting to micromanage our lives? Are they, look, are they just looking for improper behavior so that they can punish people? I think, I think this is how church discipline rings in the ears of some people. And, and listen, if you, if you think about just the greater sense of history, the church hasn't always done a very good job, right? We've done some horrible things in the name of church discipline. In the days of the, the Spanish Inquisition, the church would use devices of torture they, they would put people on the rack, and they would stretch them, and then they would flog them in an attempt to encourage righteousness. And you're probably wondering, like, like how do they think that was right? Like, how do they get that in their mind, which is, a, which is a really fair question, because we understand how wicked torture is, but in their mind, you know, hell was a very real reality. And they truly believed that it was, it was better for someone to endure some sense of physical pain and, and, and as a result, repent than to be found themselves in the fires of hell. Um, but, but listen, I'd say this, no, no matter how righteous their motives, it's not the way of Christ to lead people to repentance at the, at the tip of a sword. And fast forward to today, and it's probably the opposite extreme, isn't it? In most churches, there's no, there's no mechanism for correction when it comes to sin. Most Christians think, and this is really what interesting is the way I grew up, most Christians think that they have a personal relationship to Christ and that their sin is no business of anyone else in the church. And we, we value our independence above all things. We don't want to hurt people's feelings and we don't want to rock the boat. And so let's just let everybody do what they're going to do and everyone in the church just mind your own business. But we need to ask some questions together. We, you and I, I think our church for, for sure is striving to live in obedience to the word of God. If that is not your goal, you're in the wrong place. I love you. I'm glad you're here. You're so welcome. But this is a church of people who have decided that we are going to work together to live in obedience to the word of God. That's, that's what defines us. So our question should be, is church discipline biblical? 
period. We could say, another question we could ask is, is church discipline healthy? Why should a Christian value it? And I think what's going to be a really important question that's answered in our text today is ultimately, like, what does it look like? What, is, what does church discipline look like? Because we, we've seen some examples of how it's done bad this morning. So we got a lot of work to do. So I want to jump into our main text, which is going to answer the question, what should your church discipline look like? We're going to be reading from Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I invite you to stand in reverence of the Word of God read. And before we read together, uh, we'll pause and have a word of prayer. Father, we are gathered in your name. We submit ourselves to your lordship. And we thank you that the Spirit does its work as we read Scripture to convict and to quicken our hearts that we might rightly understand it. We thank you for this word and we submit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, here we are, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take, uh, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there am i among them church the grass may wither and the flowers may fade but the word of our lord will stand forever and this is the word of our lord thanks be to god please go ahead and be seated There's a great danger in, um, in reading Scripture out of context where you, you, don't, um, you don't ground it in its greater narrative. You don't ground it in its greater paragraph, its greater argument. And so give me just a moment to get Matthew 18 into context for us, right? Here's what's been happening. The, the disciples are walking in Capernaum. It's, it's uh, one of their old stomping grounds. And they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You've, you've kind of heard this story before. And... Um, it's really a competition amongst the disciples about who's the most important, who's going to have the seat closest to Jesus, who's going to have the highest office. And, and really, when, when men act like this, it gets kind of gross. It really does, because it involves not only making ourselves look great, listing off our accomplishments, but also bringing others down. And, and they reach their destination. They finally reach this house, and it's probably Peter's house. And Jesus is inside there, and Jesus asks him, hey, what were you guys talking about on, on the road? What were, all, what were you all discussing? And they're kind of busted, right? And they, they've actually been treating each other horrible, and they've been being so arrogant. And so Jesus begins to teach them in Matthew 18, and he starts by teaching them about humility, which is, really makes sense, about, about how, how they're supposed to treat other Christians. And, and Jesus starts his teaching by looking over in the house and calling a child over to him. And he kind of, he's going to use this child as an illustration throughout all of chapter 18. He's going to have the child with him. And the basic idea that Jesus starts with is that God's people are like this 
child, and, and you guys should humble yourself like this child. And, and then he kind of keeps going. He says, in the way that you would never cause a child like this to sin, don't, don't cause one of my, my followers to sin, and don't, don't cause a Christian to sin, and, and don't think down upon the children of God. He's talking about Christians, right? He's ta- trying, to, trying to tell them how to treat Christians by, by having this child there. The child represents a Christian. And, and, he, and he pivots to how you should think about children of God. And, and, he, and he goes on, he tells the parable of the lost sheep. Do you remember that? He tells the parable of the lost sheep. He explains how he, the good shepherd, would leave the 99 and go find one sheep. And, and the point he's making is, is you can't look down upon other believers, other little Christians, even when they stray from the flock. You still can't look down for them because they're so valuable that Jesus says, I'll go find them. And when I do find them, I'm going to celebrate them. So real quick, what does the child represent? Christians. Who does the lost sheep represent? It represents a Christian who has wandered from the flock. And that's our context, folks. I mean, like that was, that was the last thing that Jesus said in a continual teaching, right? He just said, you know, basically, I'm going to go leave the 99 to find the one. And then we, we, right there, we get our reading for today. The disciples are still sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus still has this child before him. And he says, uh, he said, don't look down on this little one. If they wander, I'm going to go get them. Jesus is suggesting that wandering sheep are valuable to him. Now, I'm going to once again make this claim that the section that we read this week is about church discipline. And it, I want to suggest to you that it has something to do with wandering sheep. Why do we exercise church discipline? Well, consider, if you will, the value of lost sheep. They're valuable to Jesus. Are they valuable to us? That's the question. That's kind of the subtext of that. The lost sheep are valuable to Jesus. Are they valuable to us? Do you love your Christian brother or sister enough? Do you love them enough that you're willing to have a hard conversation so that they might be restored to you. Look at verse 15. We'll start there. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the question we start with is, um, who is responsible for church discipline? You are. We all are. It is a church exercise. There is no, we don't have a church Gestapo here, right? Uh, the church is a body, and we're all concerned for, for each other. In, in this situation, Jesus describes a Christian brother who has sinned against you. And, and most of us know how this goes. I mean, have you ever had this happen? Someone says something or does something that is offensive? And maybe it's just, maybe it's just a little rude comment. And um, let's just say that you are able to just lap it off, and it really doesn't offend you, right? In that case, that's great. Blessed is the man who is hard to offend. Uh, you, you probably are going to be the kind of guy, if you can do that, who's going to get along with everybody. I just, we just need to make the distinction. You don't have to confront every person in your life who is rude. 
You could just, you could, it's, it's an amazing thing. You could just choose to not be offended. You could just choose to forgive them. That is, that is the best case scenario. I like this world is so full of taking offense all the time. But let's just say that's not the case. The situation presupposes here that sin has actually caused damage to the relationship. And, and I think, I'm going to make the suggestion that it presupposes that the relationship has been severed. Why do I say that? Because the stated goal here is that you would go and you would gain your brother back. So, so my suggestion is that you don't gain something back that you haven't lost. There's been a loss. There's been a severing of the relationship. Uh, 15 says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Somehow sin has caused that rift that has affected that relationship. And I, I guess play make-believe with me and go through your mind and I just ask you do, you, do you have any relationships like that? Are there brothers and sisters who, who right now are lost to you because of sin? And, and I think you know the distance, the, the kind of distance I'm talking about. Because first you start, just kind of stop looking at them. And then you start trying to avoid them. And then that distance means that you kind of start attributing to them bad motives. You're like, that's, I, I, he's always like that. He's, you know, you start doing this. And before long, that person that used to be your friend, they're lost to you. Do you know that feeling? So the question is, do you love them enough to have a hard conversation and to seek to do the work of restoration? Because, friends, this is the teaching of Jesus. Like the good shepherd that goes after the lost sheep, you go after your brother and sister that you might be restored to them. But listen, it, it takes courage. Like, I'm not going to pretend it doesn't, because the truth is you've got to go alone. And the goal of the conversation has to be that you are restored. And, and restoration has to be the heart of the conversation. Not only your restoration to your brother, but also your brother's restoration to the Lord. Sin separates us. Repentance, repentance brings us together. The goal is, is, is repentance. The goal is, is restoration. However, like, you can't simply go and confront them with wrath. Like, if you do that, you're going to restore nothing. Look at Galatians 6.1. This is what it says to us. Brothers, if, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, there's a gentleness we're to have. And, and we're also to keep watch of ourselves, lest we too be tempted. What are we going to be tempted to do? To be arrogant? To pretend like we don't have sin? To think that we're better than our brothers, which is what's already been being taught against here? This work is hard, and you've got to guard your heart as you do it. But there is a way to have this conversation. And listen, the truth is... <laughs> I've had this conversation a lot. I have done this a lot. In fact, I, I, the truth is, I called a brother last week to have this exact conversation. And, and let me just tell you, it worked, and we love each other, and we were restored. And, uh, and, and two weeks ago, you know, a different brother called me because something I had done had caused them offense, and we too had this conversation. And it worked then also, and we're also restored. Do you know why? Because mature Christians know how to talk to one another. And they know how to say things like this. Brother, I, 
I know something's going on between us. And I don't like it. And I can feel in my heart that, that man, I'm, I'm starting to attribute to you bad intentions. And I can tell that I'm not being charitable to you. And I think it all began with this one thing that you did. And it hurt me. And I didn't like it. But now our, our relationship seems to be fractured. And, and I don't like that either because I love you. If you can figure out how to talk to your brothers and sisters like that, you will find yourself practicing a restorative church discipline. But what happens, I guess the next question is, what happens when the two of you, like you can't agree on the narrative? Like sometimes, it, like the last two weeks I've had these two conversations, it's, it's been beautiful. But sometimes you, you go to your brother and, or your sister and the two of you can't seem to work it out. What if you say to your brother, you sinned against me, you know, I, I, I miss you and it all started when you did this one thing, you sinned against me and they say, no I didn't. Or what if they simply like, I don't really want to hear this. I mean, I don't want to listen to you. What do you do then? Well, this is what verse 16 says you do next. It says this. But if he does not listen to you, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of one, two, or three witnesses. And what I hope you're seeing here is that um, the church discipline is not, it's not top down. In a way, it's, in a way, it's outside in, right? Um, it starts with two Christian friends, often, who try to address a sin that, that breaks relationships. When they get stuck, when it doesn't work, they ask for help. Not a big group of people. You don't ask for a big group at first. You just ask for two or three wise people. And listen, I, I think that the elders are uniquely gifted for this kind of ministry. I think if you need help, the elders are uniquely good here to take with you. And I've actually, um, I've actually done this before. I've actually needed their help when, when making peace with a brother. You see, I, I had a brother who I loved, and we were, kind, we were the kind of friends, the, we were close enough that we, we celebrated each other's birthdays together. We went to, went to each other's birthday parties. And, and yet, due to a series of, of un, unfortunate choices by him, we found ourselves in a broken friendship. And, and we did. I mean, we, had, we put a lot of effort into it. We went round and round, had several phone calls, and we couldn't work it out. We came to a difference of, of opinion, and, and so we needed help. And so we sat down, and what was great is, is we sat down, we invited a couple of elders to sit with us. And, and we tried to talk out the issues in front of those elders, and, and the elders played a very important role. Here's, here's what they did. They listened carefully as we took turns presenting our understanding of the conflict. And I remember, I, I remember really clearly that, that I was mad at this guy. And I think in this situation, you would, you would assume that the elders are going to come in and they're going to get the pastors back and they're, they're going to side with him on all things. But that's not really what happened. Um, they just listened and, and they discerned. And let me just tell you that the world writes people off when they're in conflict with them. If you are a normal person and you're normally living in a community, you're gonna have conflict sometimes. And the world just writes people off when this happens. The church doesn't. The church addresses sin and tries to be restored. And so we got together to talk through the conflict. We invited a couple elders and I went first and I tried to explain what had happened. And as I did, as I was trying to explain this, 
one of the elders stopped me. And they said, Tyson, I don't, I don't really think it's fair for you to assume his motives right there. You see, one of the areas where I was mad, I had made some assumptions about this, this man's motives. And I, and I really, I wasn't clear enough in the head to realize that I was doing that. And I think that was really helpful for me. And I think it was helpful for him because he was able to see that this wasn't an ambush, that like we were all here as brothers trying to work this out. And I was able to apologize for that. But as we began to discuss some of his other behavior and how he was deceitful and how he was hurtful, he still refused to acknowledge that his behavior was wrong. And, and then what the elders did is, is, as they had done for me, they began trying to help explain to him how his behavior was sinful. And they were, they were helpful, and they were, they were patient with him. It wasn't mean. But the question then goes, what happens if the brother refuses to listen even to the two or three who have helped to explain? Well, the Scripture says, it says, you tell the church. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, the word here for church is ecclesia. You heard that word before. Um, it, it became known as kind of church later. I mean, I think as more of the formal idea of church later. I think it, it began simply here as, as a word in Greek that meant an assembly of people. So like in Greek culture, if you went to a a movie or a show, probably not movies, but maybe a show back in Greek culture, uh, the people who had gathered there to watch that, that was the ecclesia, that was the assembly, you know, right? And later in Acts 2, that word ecclesia kind of gets formed more solidly as describing God's people as the church. But this is before all that, and ecclesia probably just meant a, a gathering of Christians, the, the, the body of Christians. And so the action here is uh, Jesus is suggesting to involve the community, the greater Christian community, with the problem of sin here. But only after you have tried step one and step two. But if they still won't listen to the other believers, maybe if you tell the church, one of them will be able to convince him of his sin. Now here's the danger. The danger is that we read all of this and... Uh, and we begin to understand it as a problem of relationships. Like, like you begin to see it as those two guys just couldn't get along. But the issue here is not really about getting along. The issue is about sin. It's not just about people who can't quit bickering. It's a process that, that, that starts. Like you shouldn't even start bickering unless there's sin, right? There's clear sin. So we are back to those questions. Is church discipline helpful? Is church discipline biblical? And why worry with church discipline at all? Isn't it just better to just let people do whatever they please? Paul writes to the church in Corinth, right? And, and Paul is fired up. Like if you remember this story, Paul is fired up in 1 Corinthians because uh, there's an occurrence that's happening and it's a very public sin in the Corinthian church. And, and I think what makes Paul mad is that no one's doing anything about it. No one's saying anything about it. They're kind of letting it, they're laughing it off or maybe even making excuses for it. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2. This is what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. What is it? Well, here it is. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. 
Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So a man is sleeping with his father's wife, and it appears that the church is tolerating, tolerating it. There, there's no church discipline to speak of. No one went to him. No one returned with two witnesses. It just seems to be ignored. What is the biblical instruction for this kind of sin, according to, to Paul here? It's, it's the removal from the ecclesia. It's the removal from the church fellowship. Look at 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's one of those feel-good verses, isn't it? I don't think Joe Olstein has ever heard that verse in his life. <laughs> Here's Paul's logic, right? Um, if a brother refuses to repent, that's a big issue. And, and you can't let him stay in the false, and here's the, listen, you can't let him stay in the false safety and security of the church where he thinks that he's safe. Because the truth is, if they're unrepentant, they're not safe. In a, in a strange way, it's actually better for them if they're removed from the flock and sent into the world, and the language Paul uses is, deliver this man to Satan. Now hopefully, listen, you're not giving this man to Satan for the damnation of his soul. That's not what you're doing. Paul says that so that Satan might destroy his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. The hope is that, that since he's not listening to any one of us, maybe sending him out into the world to live with the consequences of his sin for a while might break him in such a way that brings him to repentance. And someday he will say, um, I repent. And, 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 and so um, the idea is then, then he'll be welcomed back into the fellowship of the church because he's, he's not sent out because he's a sinner. He's sent out because he's a sinner who cannot find repentance. And some will say this. Some will say, like, what's the harm? Paul, why, why not just let him stay? What, what, do you, what, what good are you doing him? What good are you doing anything? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 7, the continuation of this argument, verses 6 through 7. It says this. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul's point is, is this. It's, it's that, that sin is like leaven in the dough. That sin, un, unaddressed, is, is pervasive, it becomes pervasive, it becomes contagious, if not removed, and it will spread throughout all of God's people. With that in mind, read with me again Matthew 18, 7, or 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Outsiders. This is not what we want. We want to be restored, and, and, and we want to restore the sinner. But if the sinner refuses to repent, that leaven has to be removed. We don't do this to be mean. We do this because we care about lost sheep. We care about the purity of Christ's church. We care about the witness of our community. We care about the glory and honor of God. So yes, like we all sin, 
There's not one person in here who doesn't sin. And we should all be willing to repent and be restored. And the moment you refuse to repent of your sin, you are in danger. And those who love you will do drastic things to save you. Let me read these last three verses with you, Matthew um, 18, 18 through 20. It's very interesting. These, none of these verses think what you thought they meant, I don't, if I had to surmise. Here's what it says. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What do we begin by saying? Context is everything, right? My guess is most people read these verses out of context. What are we discussing? What, what, what has Jesus been talking about? We're talking about how to care for Christians, and ultimately we're talking about church discipline. This is not how people read this. They read this like Jesus is talking about a prayer meeting, right? When Jesus says, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, what he's doing is he's giving the church authority to adjudicate church discipline. To loose is to forgive and to maybe to admit into membership. To bind is to not forgive and maybe to send out of the fellowship, right? This is about Jesus uh, saying, I'm standing with the church in its decisions on church discipline. You say, but Tyson, it says, if, if two of you agree on anything, uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. And uh, I just want you to know that, that me and Aunt Betty have agreed that all war should stop. And, and we think that God will probably have it done by tomorrow. That's not how this works. You plus one buddy don't get to control the sovereign plans of God. Is that okay? Can I say this? Like two or more gathered, whatever you, you know, bind on earth is going to be done in heaven. You and one buddy don't get to control the sovereign plans of God. What is suggested instead is if the local church gathers together and it does so in the name of Christ, even two or three, and, and it's gathering for the purpose of church discipline, what, what these brothers decide on earth will be echoed in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, he says, I am there also. It does not mean, it does not mean that Christ shows up when we pair up, right? Or, or Christ appears in groups of two or three, because what, here's what we know. Christ is always with the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to get in pairs for Christ to be there. It's saying even when a, a small group of church leaders gets together to exercise rightly church judgment, it's authoritative because Christ is there in your midst, and it's authoritative because of his authority. I wonder if you knew that these verses were about church discipline. If you make them about prayer, you're reading them out of context. You're taking away from God his sovereign rule. Jesus tells his disciples to do church discipline and when you do, you have my authority. Lest this all sound harsh, let's, let me review what we mean by church discipline, okay? It means that when a brother sins against you, when they, when they break your relationship by sin, you go to them, you pursue them to be restored, that you may gain back your brother 
the way Jesus goes after the lost sheep. You might say, well, what if they, they sin, but it's not against me? What if, they, what if it's a sin, it's not against me? Well, I, I guess that depends on a lot of things. Sometimes the elders have to deal with certain public and unrepentant sins within the life of the church. But, but I'll tell you this, the goal is always, it's always restoration. The goal is always restoration. Restoration for friendships, restoration for families, and ultimately restoration of the sinner with the Lord. So we follow the model of Matthew 18. Go to your brother that you may gain him back. If he does not listen, take two or three, that evidence may be established. If he still doesn't listen, tell the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a tax collector or a Gentile. For what you bind will be bound in heaven. For what two or three of you agree upon in my name, it will be done by the Father. Because where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I am there also. My prayer is Christ's church would always be, that we would always be restoring broken friendships, restoring sinners to the right standing with the Lord. And so I end by asking you this. Have you lost a brother or sister because sin has severed your relationship. I don't, I don't care if it's yours or theirs. Does Christ not call you to go and be restored? Do you have the courage to do that? I challenge you to go and to gain back your brother or your sister. Thanks be to God. We've read together Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you um, for the call of discipleship. And we find in that word discipleship this idea of discipline, Lord, that, that we would learn to become a people of your kingdom, a people who do a restoring work uh, for, for, uh, between you, Lord, between ourselves, and ultimately, God, between all of creation. May you be glorified in, in, in the work of discipline that, that we do amongst ourselves, Father, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. <laughs>